Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. Got a lot to go over, but first, I want to remind you, we got a great interview. Q2 numbers are out, and we talked to our money man, Dave Leventhal, about it. Some real interesting stuff in there. Uh, Specifically, we go all through the wreckage that is the Beto O'Rourke campaign financially. We talk about the big surprise of Mayor Pete leading the pack, what Bernie's small donor advantage means, whether or not those numbers would have been better for candidates like Kamala Harris and Julian Castro if the books hadn't had to close two days after the debates? A lot. Go ahead and check it out. It's in the feed right now. Of course, you can support this show by going to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's where you can go to our Patreon. If you sign up at the $3 level, you get the bonus podcast on Monday, the bonus podcast on Friday. However, We have had, for whatever reason, look, man, I ain't your dad. I'm not going to ask you why some people just don't like Patreon. For whatever reason, they got a problem with the platform. That is what it is. If you don't like them, for whatever reason, that's fine. You can now support us on a new platform called Red Circle. Just go to redcircle.com slash px3. You'll get a custom RSS feed right there. It's the same episodes that you would get on Patreon, but now it's with a different platform. So if you don't like the platform, go to this other platform. I ain't here to get into a fight over platforms. Go check it out right now, redcircle.com slash px3 or takepoliticsseriously.com. All right, let's go ahead and stop talking about how we support the show and just do the damn thing. friends hello welcome welcome back to the program it's your old pal justin robert young for another episode of politics 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 oh man it is normally a cruel summer summer sucks for news summer sucks for political news it's just slim pickings but we had a big week we're gonna talk about all of it we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, more about the Q2 numbers, uh, even though we did the interview yesterday. Go check that out. We're going to talk about Trump's tweets. We're going to talk about the squad. We're going to talk about Nancy Pelosi. We're going to talk about a bad ad that's already come out. You know how much we love bad ads. But first, I want to talk about perspective. I want to talk about what happens when we only focus in the moment. We just had a president be elected the last time we went ahead and did this thing that was somebody that many, including myself, said was the biggest upset in presidential history. And I still believe that in terms of the qualifications of the candidate, the likelihood that people gave it, the reaction to it. I've never seen an election have such reverberations. 
But that was in the moment. We're still in that moment. We're still reacting to the echoes of that moment like we did this week. So after I went back in time to 1992, watched that Perot infomercial, put that up. Thank you to everybody who responded to uh, what they thought Perot sounded like. For my money, it was in this order. Bernie, Warren, Trump. I got a bunch of emails, though. Uh, sending me memories of 1992 and how they thought about Ross Perot, whether or not their opinion had changed, blah, blah, blah. But I got one that was fascinating, and I'm going to share it with you right now. Jim wrote in. Jim W. I know there's a lot of Jims here, so uh, I'm going to give big shout-out to Jim W. He's going to be the inspiration for our A Block today. Jim sent me a bunch of clips about Donald Trump's 2000 flirtation, the year 2000 flirtation with running for president on the Reform Party ticket. So remember where we are right now. 1992, Ross Perot runs, gets 19% of the vote. 1996, Ross Perot runs, gets about 8% of the vote. Now, both of those are fairly statistically important. 2000, he doesn't run. At this point, uh, Jesse the Body Ventura had already been elected governor on the Reform Party ticket. He'd flirted with running for president. But in comes Donald Trump on the back of a new book thinking about a third-party run. So what are the criteria if in the year 2000 Donald Trump were to throw his hat in the ring? You go out and you run. If I get 20% of the vote, big deal. People say, great job for 24 hours, great job. And not that it's a bad place, but I'm back in my office at Trump Tower the following Wednesday. So I'm looking as to whether or not it can, I can win. If I can win, I believe I can do a very good job. Otherwise, I wouldn't be running. It's as simple as that. This was not the first time that Donald Trump had threatened to run for president. He did so in the 80s, and obviously he would do so a few more times before he eventually runs 16 years after that clip was recorded. But the song remains the same. I don't want to run unless I can win. So what's his pathway to victory? Well, then, now, and forever, it's been trashing his opponents. Remember that in the year 2000, two of the candidates that are running on the Republican side are Steve Forbes and George W. Bush. A man, a gentleman got up and said, oh, but Mr. Trump, you know, you have a lot of wealth and this and that, and other people have wealth. I said, yeah, but I created my wealth. I created, there's a big difference between creating wealth and being a member of the Lucky Sperm Club which a number of different people that are right now running are. Oh, but he got more specific. Here was his take on George W. Bush. Well, so far I've been very, very saddened by the fact that he certainly doesn't seem like Albert Einstein. Do you think he'd been governor if his father had not been president? No. How about a little something for Bill Bradley? Uh, a man who I just don't have tremendously high regard for, and I think he'd be a terrible president. What about this one about John McCain? And he was captured. So and he flew combat missions. Question, does being captured make you a hero? I don't know. I'm not sure. Again, this is from the year 2000. This is not from 
2015. This is not from 2016. This is from the year 2000. He literally was saying this in the year 2000. I don't remember people bringing this up. But whatever. He said a thing then that he eventually said later. Here's what I want to get to. Donald Trump's chief competition for the Reform Party nomination would be Pat Buchanan. Buchanan was a known quantity, but he really made his bones in the 1992 Republican primary when he channeled trade imbalance and immigration. Just so you know who Pat Buchanan is, here's a few quotes from Pat Buchanan during that primary. In the last 25 years, Japan has bought 400,000 American cars and they sold us 40 million. That's not going to be the same way the next 25 years. So give my best to Mr. Hashimoto and, and tell him it's not going to be the same way in the next 25 years. We're going to get along just fine because I see he looks out for Japan first and I look out for America first. Okay. Find and replace a couple countries, right? How about this one, also from 92? The Japanese are putting under assault supercomputers, flat panel technology. They are challenging our aircraft industry. Where is the administration plan to make America first again in manufacturing by the year 2000? So how does Donald Trump describe Pat Buchanan? So you have an ultra-right. An ultra-right. Now, Trump spent a lot of time in the clips that I reviewed hammering Buchanan for choosing Isola Foster as his running mate. He called her a communist. Ironically, she was the first African-American to be on a federally funded ticket because the Reform Party qualified for federal funds at that point. Here's Trump discussing her. And I think his choice of a communist was not a good choice to help him get on the ballot because he really sacrificed his principles. Now, here's where I, I don't know exactly. I want to be clear here. I don't know if he really means Isola Foster is a communist because also apparently Buchanan was supported by... Socialist Party USA future presidential candidate Brian Moore. So maybe he meant him. Either way, his running mate was Isola Foster. So there's that. By the way, Buchanan eventually got that nomination. Ross Perot wound up endorsing George W. Bush. And Buchanan finished the race with less than 1% of the vote. But here's a moment that I want to highlight. Because specifically this week, I believe that this is kind of important to understand. Donald Trump loves the spotlight. That is clear. He tries to attack high-value targets for which he will extract press coverage. It was his job. It's his current job in all these clips that we're playing. But there's also one political philosophy. And he explains it very clearly in this 60 Minutes piece that we are pulling some of these clips from. This is Donald Trump on stage at a Tony Robbins event. 20,000 people in what was then The Pond, the home of the Mighty Ducks in Anaheim, California. Get even when somebody... When somebody screws you, screw them back, but a lot harder, folks. So to bring this into a modern context, when somebody says... We're going to impeach the motherfucker. 
Then you go on a Twitter tirade saying that maybe you shouldn't be a congresswoman or you should go back from where you came and you should be criticized for your vulgarity. The fact that Donald Trump is the president and she's a congresswoman doesn't matter. Get even. And when you do, screw them even harder. Okay, a couple of funny things that we can end on. Number one, this is Donald Trump sounding a lot like how he would run in 2016, talking about trade imbalances. But at the same time, I feel strongly that some of the other, our trading partners are ripping us off big league. Ah, he actually does mean big league. I guess 16 years ago, he didn't slur those words together. Here's the funniest part, though. So this is the end of the 60 Minutes piece. Dan Rather's been following him around for a couple days, and alongside him the entire way is, and this is how she's credited, then-girlfriend Melania. So I assumed, knowing now, of course, that she's the first lady, they were married, they have a kid, that the then-girlfriend was to signify the fact that maybe since they did the interview, they'd gotten engaged. Not so much. He's living the life of the man who has everything. He may no longer be dancing with Melania, they broke up just a few days ago, but his flirtation with the public and the presidency is far from over. Whether or not some of the so-called Trump magic in terms of real estate, in terms of hotels, in terms of everything, translate into votes, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe people will pay me $10 million to live in a building that I built, but they won't pay me two cents to press a lever saying Trump for president. That's possible. All right, folks, if you would like to get our free political newsletter, you can do so at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. We made it into the 30s. We're in the 1930s. 1,930 subscribers to the fastest growing newsletter in politics. Get all of the, all the, the, the jury's deliberations. We don't say hot takes anymore. We say jury's deliberations to your inbox for free. Every single weekday, Monday through Friday, five stories that you should really pay attention to. Also, if you're about that blog life, if you got that RSS reader, then how about you head on over to politicspoliticspolitics.com. I'm taking some of my favorite stuff from the newsletter, all of the new media clips that we're putting together, uh, all the, the, the YouTube videos, and I'm putting them up on politicspoliticspolitics.com. Go ahead and check it out. Politics. Oh, Beto, oh, Beto. I don't know how I should handle this because I feel like I have been at the head of the selling short of Beto stock from over a year ago. Maybe not over a year ago. In a few months, about a year ago, I was very impressed with how he ran against uh, Ted Cruz. I was very impressed with the way that he raised money against Ted Cruz. I felt like his campaign was a little aimless, that they were benefiting from a Ted Cruz sucks halo. And then I was very disappointed with how he ended his campaign. I thought it was unfocused. I thought he was terrible during the debates. Uh, and, and ultimately, the more I've looked into him as a candidate, I ultimately think that he was cast for the wrong role. 
Beto was looked at as somebody that could be the Democrat that flips Texas. But that means being a moderate. And Beto has never succeeded being a moderate. He's always succeeded running to the left of a leftward candidate. He wants to be more Chapo's trap house than triangulation. And so he lost. But he raised so much money that the idea of Beto, the concept of Beto, only grew. That man raised $76 million to run against Ted Cruz. As Dave Leventhal pointed out to us in the interview yesterday, he raised $10 million in Q2 of 2018 to run for Senate. So the question then becomes, if we believe in you to run for president, we believe in you to run for president for two reasons. Number one, you're a walking ATM. Money falls out of you. It is rare that somebody can connect on the big money level that Beto connected. Number two, you came very close to playing statewide against Ted Cruz and winning. Maybe that means that the Texas demographics have changed. Maybe that means you're the man to speak to them. And if we can even threaten, even threaten to turn Texas blue in 2020, that's a gigantic electoral advantage. That is something that you can't pay for. Beto, you're the man. Born to be in it. Someone call Annie Leibovitz. We're going to drive this truck out down the road. We're going to take a picture. This thing is going to go flawlessly. Joe Biden's going to step on his peen so hard it'll fall off. And the next thing you know, all of the moderate votes will fall into your lap. Beto, oh, Beto, you are the man. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to the ballot box. There have been three polls taken for the Democratic primary in Texas. Beto hasn't led a single one of them. And in the most recent poll, which was taken from May 31st to June 9th, he is trailing Joe Biden by eight points. So he's not even the most popular Democrat in Texas. That might challenge things a little bit in terms of him being able to flip it. All right, but don't worry. Don't worry. You want to know why Texas isn't really the biggest deal in terms of uh, uh, being electoral advantage? Maybe we don't get the superpower, but at the very least, this man prints green. Yeeps. Q2 fundraising came in. Remember, in Q2, running against Ted Cruz, he raised $10 million. Now, running for president, he raised... 3.6. Beto, 3.6 means you ain't got no shot. And so now the question becomes possibly what it should have been from the very beginning when you run competitively for Senate against one candidate. Why don't you run for Senate again against another Republican? You learn your lessons. You have the same playbook. You have the same donor network, and it still fits into the narrative. You came out of that race running competitively against Ted Cruz, a nationally famous candidate. You know, you're in Texas. Electing a Democratic senator there is not easy. Taking two tries to do it should not inspire any shame. And John Cornyn, 
is up for re-election in 2020. This should have been a slam dunk. He could have run for two years on this. But no, he takes this haphazard jaunt because somebody gaslights him into believing that he should be president. And now we're here. It's July 17th, 2019. Should Beto drop out of the presidential race and run for Senate against John Cornyn? Well, let's take a look at some of the facts on the ground. Number one, John Cornyn, to this point, according to the same Q2 fundraising numbers, has raised about $10 million. He spent four. He's got about $9 million cash on hand based on previous fundraising. Beto could roll into the race with a fairly sizable war chest considering. He would also, at this point, if he, let's say, dropped out tomorrow and then announced he was running for Senate the day after that, be the most famous Democrat to challenge Cornyn. Right now, the only other person to announce is Air Force veteran M.J. Hager. But here's the funny thing. Somebody who is expected to run against Cornyn is Joaquin Castro. Joaquin Castro is the twin brother of Julian Castro, a.k.a. the dude who ate Beto's soul during that first debate. So if Beto ran like a scalded dog from this failed presidential campaign, went back down to Texas, and ran against John Cornyn, he would first have to dispatch with the twin brother of the person that helped expel him from the presidential race. And then, by the way, MJ Hager, a woman. So he would have to explain in the primary of that race why he's running against a Latino and a female. And we all know how much Beto loves apologizing and explaining. Oh my God, is Beto screwed. If he had said initially, this is my race, I'm going to do it again, uh, second time's the charm, this is happening, he could have been hailed as a hero. Instead, it's a rock and a hard place for the Lone Star loser, Beto O'Rourke. And by the way, by the way, do you know how much of a tire fire your campaign has to be for me, me, Justin Robert Young, the lover of all messy stuff in politics, to get this far into an explanation of where your situation is that I get to the point that you apologized for having slave owner ancestors? <laughs> this guy. I'm rooting for him now, by the way. I'm rooting for Beto now. It's so bad. It's so bad that even I can't... Uh, I, look, I've already cashed in all my stock. I, I sold him short. Everything's going disastrous. Now I'm kind of rooting for him. Go, Beto, go. Turn it around. No, you're going to have a great second debate. All right. You want to get into this Trump tweet? We'll get into this Trump tweet. Mentioned it a little bit in, in, in the A block. Donald Trump decided to weigh in on what was a open warfare situation in the House. Nancy Pelosi came out and said, hey, you guys, the squad, a.k.a. AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley. You guys need to stop lighting other people that are in your party on fire because... If you want to do the things that you guys want to do, especially 
the kind of stuff you guys want to do, which is very progressive and makes a lot of people uncomfortable because a politician's natural instinct is to keep their phony baloney jobs. And if they're doing things that might imperil that they don't want to do it, y'all need to be nicer to people. Because if you call them names in public, then they're less likely to support you. So congratulations, you're getting all the media attention and everybody hangs on your every word, but shut the F up. This is the message that is delivered during a closed door meeting, reportedly, at the end of last week. Pelosi says, if you want to bitch to me, that's fine. I can do my best behind the scenes to take care of what you need. But the more you do it in public, the less I can support you. Yell at me in public. Don't yell at them. So then AOC's chief of staff calls some of the moderate Democrats that supported the border funding bill the new Southern Democrats. In case you don't realize the context there, the old Southern Democrats started the KKK and were instrumental in keeping Jim Crow alive. So that's the the magnitude of nickname that he's throwing on him. This breaks loose over the weekend. The official House Democrat Twitter goes after AOC's chief of staff in a tweet. AOC comes out and says that Pelosi's singling out uh, congresswomen of color. It is messy. But then in swings our truffle pig president, Donald Trump. Much like the truffle pig, Donald Trump knows where headlines are. And he sniffs them out and runs toward them with reckless abandon. And so that's what he did on Sunday. Uh, in a series of tweets, he insinuated that the squad come from countries with broken governments. And if they want to use all their brilliant ideas, they should go back to those countries and fix them before coming to America and trying to fix ours. Now, three of the four of the squad are born in America. So, doesn't make a whole lot of sense there. The only one who was born out of the country is Ilhan Omar, who's from Somalia. Meaning that by a fairly reasonable parsing of that tweet, the concept of go back to Africa is present. Now, is that racist? That is my firm belief that racism is to be determined by those that feel it not those that issue it. So it seems anything that's dancing around the concept of go back to Africa, something that you would put in the mouth of a cartoon racist if you were trying to cartoonishly express racism, yeah, racist. Is that new news? No, Donald Trump's been called racist plenty of times before. He'll probably be called racist plenty of times since. Are you changing minds? No, probably not. Are you generating headlines? Ah, yes. Because our truffle pig president, boy, does his sense of smell rarely fail. This explodes. I genuinely don't know how much anybody should give credit for Donald Trump playing 4D chess. Because I do think he is a gut instinct kind of guy. He saw the ability that he could run headlong into a controversy, and he did. 
it exploded bigger than he could have, and now he spends the next three days basically just trying to continue the controversy while offering whatever kind of shaving of the truth that he wants to. Here's the lay of the land the way I see it, though. Donald Trump benefits greatly, greatly, by AOC and the squad being more famous than the Democratic nominee. For this reason, the squad is going to be to the left of the nominee in all likelihood. Trump's favorite new 2020 slogan is America will never be a socialist country. So the further to the left the most famous Democrat can be, the better off it is for him, especially since all these women are young. You can fairly credibly say they are the future of the party. There is an excited section of the Democratic Party that will say the exact same thing. So the squad goes from being on the outs in their own party on Friday to being the center of all attention on Monday. Did Trump mean for that to happen? You can be the judge on that. Will he take advantage of it? Almost certainly. Will anyone learn any lesson? Wrong! Okay. Well, in that case, it's probably time. Wrong! 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 For the parade of wrong opinions. Hey, this is a really good ad. Justin Amash is having an identity crisis. He, like Nancy Pelosi, both support taxpayer-funded sex changes. And in Michigan, we take a more binary view on things. And taxpayer-funded sex changes just don't cut. Guess Justin's gotten a little confused after spending years of being something he's not, like a Republican. I'm Tom Norton. I'm a pro-Trump Afghanistan war veteran, a family man, and a tireless advocate for our military veterans. And when I get to Washington, I'm going to get busy cutting the pork, not the sausage. I'm Tom Norton. I approve this message. Wrong! In the ad, the candidate is cooking breakfast for his two children, a boy and a girl. Why is this a bad ad? Well, number one, whenever you're making fairly crude jokes about anatomy or sexuality, I think you really kind of need a point to do it. So I can get the idea that when you are in the brainstorming session and your opponent, Justin Amash, officially leaves the Republican Party to become an independent on July 4th, you say, oh, changing parties, changing genders, Let's find a way that we can tie that together with Nancy Pelosi and then make a joke about chopping dicks off. Ultimately, I'd probably just assume you could say you are a Republican and Republicans would vote for the person who's still in the Republican Party as opposed to the person who just left. But hell, you do you. You know, Nancy Pelosi, she has free reign to say whatever she wants in the House. Wrong! Yeah, so as she was describing the president's tweets as disgraceful, disgusting, and racist, the Georgia Republican Doug Collins demanded that her words be taken down 
She was then <laughs> struck from the chamber. Like, not only were her words taken down, but she was not allowed to speak because apparently she broke protocol within the house. They fought for two hours, and everybody maximized their tax dollars. Wrong! Oh, okay. Well, at least these tweets, though, have really, really galvanized efforts in the Democratic-led House of Representatives to impeach the President of the United States. Wrong! Not at all. <laughs> in fact, uh, Representative Al Green of Texas, who has brought articles of impeachment to the House floor for a vote twice before, but never with Nancy Pelosi in charge, did it again yesterday. They're going to vote on it today as we record this. It has not happened yet, but it's very unlikely to succeed because the House doesn't really want it. They don't. Pelosi doesn't want it. Here's a quote. No, I don't. Pelosi told reporters Wednesday when asked about Green's effort. Does that come as a surprise? She said later in the press conference that six committees are working on following the facts. That is the serious path we are on. Indeed. They will vigorously pursue these facts just in the same way that O.J. Simpson continues his valiant quest to find the real killers. You know, Joe Biden still hasn't recovered from that disastrous debate performance. Wrong! Oh, wait. Maybe we have some new evidence. We're going to go ahead and dig into it during our poll dance, but since we are going five wide, we have to... Unfortunately, let some people know that they're not allowed in. So, de Blasio, Bennett, Bullock, Klobuchar, Gabbard, Yang, Booker, and Beto O'Rourke. I don't see how you can hate from outside of the club. You can't even get in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, let's go ahead. This is our July 17th edition of the Get on the floor if you got that booty. This is an Economist YouGov poll taken from July 14th to the 16th. Stepping up first to the stage, he might have been first in our Q2 fundraising, but he is fifth in our poll. Let's get a big round of applause for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Coming up second with 11% of this poll, she is your California Senator, Kamala Harris. With 12% of the vote. Ooh, I had to echo it because it was so shocking. He is. Bernie 
in second place with 16% of the vote. It is Elizabeth Warren. But with 25% of this national poll, he is still your headliner, Big Joe Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is a Buddha Judge six, Harris eleven, Sanders twelve, Warren sixteen, Joe Biden twenty-five, Biden up with a nine point spread. Now the reason why I wanted to point that out was because you're starting to see the the bottom of the damage that Biden did to himself during the debate because both the Economist YouGov poll had him up from their last one that showed him down, uh, 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 you know, showing the effects there, as well as the political morning consult poll. So this has been enough to boost Kamala. It's been enough to make Biden mortal, but we have yet to see a poll where either Warren or Harris, or Sanders for that matter, although he's kind of faded a little bit, have, you know, basically overtaken him. Nobody is the front runner aside from Joe Biden just yet. Now, it might happen. I'm betting it probably will, but it hasn't happened yet. Politics! All right, let's go ahead and get into Bud, your email! You can uh, email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Matt writes, on the topic of Democratic fundraising, I am seriously starting to wonder about how much will be left in the tank to fight Trump. This primary field is massive, and the candidates are pulling out all the stops just to hang in there. But how long can this last? It may be very possible that, especially with the smaller donors, they'll run out of support uh, by the time that the general starts. We aren't getting a candidate for another year. That's a lot of time for these candidates uh, that they need to spend money to stay competitive. And if the donors are running out of steam now, what will it be like in 12 months from now? I'm starting to think that Biden's big money donors might end up coming more in handy than we initially thought. Biden can likely survive a war of attrition in ways that none of the other candidates can. But even with that, Trump will still have a massive advantage over him if he wins. Trump has no internal competition and can spend all of his money on the general election. Matt, congratulations. You have now explained to everybody in our audience one of the incumbent advantages. You don't have to run in a primary. You can just run against the people that run in a primary. So that helps. But also, I wouldn't say that it's Biden that has the advantage. Remember, it was Mayor Pete that raised more than Joe Biden. He's talking to a lot more of these big money donors than Joe Biden is right now, at least by the numbers. They're giving him more. We will see whether or not that continues. But as of now, I wouldn't worry about the top five. Any of those top five are going to be able to raise money going forward. Now, anybody who's not in that top five, anybody not named Biden, Bernie, Warren, Harris, Buttigieg, mm, I think we're going to see some drop-offs. 
Campaign Undertaker didn't make an appearance this episode, but I don't think that we're long for the Campaign Undertaker returning. Ned writes, Trump has set up the narrative and uh, framing for the 2020 election. He successfully moved the discussion to the question of, do you love America? If you do, vote Trump. If you don't, vote Democrat. This, in my opinion, is a winning strategy. He did so by bringing the squad to center stage and tainting them with the brush of hating America. The off-color scent of racism was a sacrifice for media attention. And he did this all with a tweet that got shat out in one night. Can you imagine the political consultants that would have burnt through tens of millions of dollars to get that kind of traction? I predict his 2020 slogan will be, I love America. Ned, I think you're kind of right. Uh, again, I'm very uncomfortable with saying that this is a 4D chess thing. I, I, I think that Trump looks smarter than he is because the way we've run campaigns, the risk-averse nature of how we've run campaigns is very predictable, and he's at least good at picking at it. That being said, I think that the, the, the way that Donald Trump's going to run is America will never be a socialist country. It got him an applause line during his State of the Union. He is going to say it a million times. Just get, get used to it. America will never be a socialist country is going to be the thing that he will wear the hell out. Joey writes, Perot talking about voting day being over the weekend reminded me of an argument I see online and I wanted to get your take on. People seem to think that making election day a holiday will fix our turnout problems, but I think it will do the opposite. Election day will turn into President's Day and every retail place will have sales to make their employees work more. The only people who would have guaranteed time off would be federal and state employees and nine to fivers who I'm sure will have no issue voting before or after work. The people who need help getting time to vote are the ones who are going to be working doubles because the mattress store they work at is having a big holiday sale. The real solution to low voter turnout is universal vote by mail. Oregon is 100% vote by mail, and they have one of the highest voter turnout rates. Vote by mail in California is super convenient. I can fill it out whenever, usually while Googling ballot initiatives. And when I'm done, I can either mail in the ballot, uh, uh, though I need a stamp, or drop it off at a 24-hour drop box, or drop it off at my polling station on election day. It's the best system ever. I'm on your side on this one, Joey. Uh, I, I don't think that giving people time off makes for, you know, more voting. And I do think that the unintended consequence of people having sales of like, hey, after you go vote, come see this movie or come buy this light bulb will be likely because, you know, people got to sell stuff. You know, what are you going to do with, with the rest of your day off? Solemnly think about America? <laughs> I don't think so. All right, that'll wrap it up for today. I want to thank Paul, Mike, and Brad for being our producers. I want to remind you that you can email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Music has been provided by Valesco and Trop Killers, and you can follow me everywhere at Justin R. Young. Or on YouTube, youtube.com slash Justin Robert Young. Posting all these cool political videos. Great ways to share some of the stuff that you like on this show. Just saying. You can download archived episodes of this show at bonerwars.com. Until next time, though, reminder, 
Politics has three names, and I knew one show that talked about politics. Another show I saw talked about politics, and there was this other one that talked about politics, but this right here is the only show that talks about all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>